A lifetime ago, I studied broadcasting at Loyalist College in Belleville, Ontario. For one of my sociology courses, I wrote a paper about Canada's First Nations and the title included these words, Canada's Apartheid. Well, my prof in that course gave me an A+. I had managed to articulate some key truths around Canada's historic relationship to its Aboriginal peoples. I've long pondered my own relationship and responsibility to love my original Canadian neighbours. On today's episode, I had a conversation with a friend that has something to say about the relationship between the church and First Nations. Aaron Mixross is the new pastor at Richmond Pentecostal Church in British Columbia. Prior to that, he served on staff at Heartland Church in Mississauga, and before that, uh, Stone Church in downtown Toronto. Needless to say, Aaron is a an urban pastor with great insights into city life. During his years at Stone Church in Toronto, he completed his PhD in theology at the University of Toronto's Wycliffe College. And the title of his thesis was, The Heavens Have Become a Highway, The Pentecostal Assemblies of Canada, Northland Mission, and the Indigenous Principle. With one half of First Nations living in major urban centers and two thirds of the Métis living in cities, it's a worthy exploration for every Canadian. This is Aaron Mixross and his view of the sidewalk skyline. Aaron, tell us about Heartland Church in Mississauga where you serve as associate pastor. Uh, how would you describe that church and the people who are part of it? How long have you been there? Thanks, Kevin. Uh, Heartland is a great church. love being part of it. It's uh, located in the north part of Mississauga. We're in an interesting season right now because we did have a church building, but we've sold our church building and we're renting a movie theater. Mm-hmm. So it kind of feels like a church plant, even though it's not. It's a church that's been around for... 35 years. Wow. And has, over the last year and a half, adjusted to meeting in a movie theater. Uh, We have a vibrant small groups ministry, and that's really helped as we've uh, not had our building. We're in the Mm -hmm. process of building a building, so the movie theater is not our permanent home. Uh, But it's been working out well, and so we're enjoying that. It is a multi-generational uh, multi-ethnic, multicultural church. It, I would say, reflects very well the community we're in, in terms of its demographics. Mm-hmm. It uh, draws congregants from Mississauga, but also the surrounding communities of Brampton, Etobicoke, Milton, Oakville, and probably the uh, the greatest segment of our congregation uh, is comprised of people that have immigrated to Canada mm-hmm. from the Global South, mm-hmm. uh, regions that we, we refer to as the Global South, and many from South Asia. And so as a multi-ethnic, multicultural church, that's become really our identity, if you will, uh, and something that we've celebrated, and I think something that's been done very well at our church. When, when you say multicultural, multi-ethnic, uh, 
how how does that uh, play out in the uh, worship practices and in the uh, the shared life of the church? Well, I think that the the first step is to acknowledge that um, a church is it, it always has some kind of a DNA, mm-hmm. and I think that if you were to survey the churches within our movement within the Pentecostal Assemblies of Canada, certainly one, the ones that are in the urban context, Mm -hmm. probably the fastest growing segment of all of those churches would be uh, through immigration, Mm -hmm. immigration from global south countries. Uh, But I think in in a lot of cases, we assume that a church does not have a, a, let's say, an underlying uh, ethnic or cultural background. Right. Um, And so I think that that can sometimes be a mistake that we make because churches always have uh, a, a cultural background. Mm-hmm. So for us, I think it was, it, it, part of it was just coming to terms with the reality that uh, we, sometimes we assume in Canadian culture, certainly, you know, over the last uh, 15, 20 years, uh, our culture has, has diversified, which is fantastic. Uh, but previous to that, we, in Canada, largely were a, a mono-ethnic culture. Mm-hmm. Uh, you might say maybe we were bicultural in terms mm-hmm. of our, our linguistic background in English right. and French. Uh, but our church, I think, had you know, came to grips with the fact that the, the background of the church was that a Euro-Canadian identity was its sort of its background. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so we had to really wrestle with that. And I think many in the congregation had to wrestle with that and come to the the realization that we had to kind of get out of some of our own narrow cultural mm-hmm. understandings, not not to kind of cease viewing our pre-existent state as sort of being a, a cultural blank slate and right. recognizing that um, as our congregation diversified, that our styles of leadership needed to diversify as well. And so... I mentioned that our church has a very vibrant small group network. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's something that I would say, as well as close to the uh, you know the the DNA, the the heart of uh, the identity of the church. Um, each of our small groups, we have about sixteen of them that meet across the region, kind of express our multiculturalism in their own unique ways. Right. And so you know, I can I can go to one small group and. It's comprised of young adults or young professionals born and raised in Canada. And I can go to another small group, and uh, it's not limited to this, but many of its members have uh, immigrated from the Middle East uh, mm-hmm. or from India via the Middle East. And so there are cultural expressions that are associated with the Middle East and with India. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's, those are just a couple of examples. Mm-hmm. But we, you know, we always work very hard to ensure that our leadership reflects the the diversity that's uh, present within our congregation. It sounds like your church is a good representation of the surrounding cultures. That's right. Yeah, rather than being a church that's trying to transition to, to reach people from other cultures, you don't have to do that because you are other cultures. That's right. Yeah. Um, I think the first significant meeting that uh, I had with you is when you were on staff at Stone Church. I think I might have met you before that, but yeah. Um, but Stone Church in Toronto, uh, <clears throat> near Young and Bloor, um, perhaps one of the best located city core churches anywhere in terms of 
you know, uh, being accessible yeah. with the uh, young blur subway lines crossing right. near there. That's right. And, and uh, just a very, uh, very unique identity as well. Very different than Heartland. That's right. Um, you were working uh, at Stone Church when also studying. And, That's right. Uh, so tell us a bit about um, Stone Church. Uh, what was it focused on during your time there? Yeah, it's a fantastic uh, church and obviously has a rich history, storied history uh, within our movement, within the Pentecostal Assemblies of Canada. I think it's it's also a celebrated history in the sense that it's a church that has had mission at the core of its identity, mm. uh, both international and domestic mission. Mm. Uh, and I think that that has contributed to the lifeblood of the church all these years, that mm. you know, if you were to trace what has kept it vibrant through uh, basically a century of existence. I think it's been the fact that it exists as a missional church. Uh, and that was something that I really enjoyed uh, mm-hmm. and took to heart. I was at Stone Church for four years, mm-hmm. uh, loved it, loved uh, my my work there. Uh, I did student ministries, young adults ministry. Uh, we did some, we even did some university campus initiatives. Yeah. And uh, we worked in the inner city as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, did outreach to uh, people that were down on their luck, living on the street surrounding mm-hmm. us, mm-hmm. obviously had partnerships with urban mission workers. Uh, so yeah. it's a really special place and uh, kind of a, a locus, you know, like a, a central meeting place. You just, you know, you described the, the centrality of its location relative to transit, mm-hmm. to subway stations. Um, but it also was a meeting place in its own right. You know, of course, you and I had a, had our first meaningful meeting there. Yeah. Um, and so there there would be instances where individuals like yourself would come and visit, and uh, it created a, a great great opportunity as someone young starting out in ministry to have a variety of opportunities and to yeah. meet some really cool people. Yeah. Yeah. Um, to you know, to continue that uh, in light of your question. With respect to my studies, one of the things that was great, and I think this is where in urban ministry, uh, we I think we, we see the best opportunity, um, was that I lived where I ministered, mm. and I lived where I studied. So, uh, it, and that's not easy. And, and you were single. Yeah, that's right. Which helped, right? That definitely helped uh, in terms of the, the cost and my willingness to you know, to exist in, in substandard uh, accommodations. <laughs> so now that I'm married, he, I try He lived to... in his car, people. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And it was a big car. Yeah. It was, you know, all, all 27 feet of it. Yeah. The old, the old Cadillac. <laughs> I remember your yeah. Cadillac. Yeah. That's right. It was a storied old Cadillac. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, I, I lived within a 10-minute walk of the church, mm-hmm. uh, also within... A ten-minute walk of the University of Toronto, mm-hmm. uh, where I was studying. Mm-hmm. I was working on my PhD in theology. Have recently graduated by the grace of God. Grateful mm-hmm. for that. Uh, my wife's grateful for that. That that's done as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it was yeah, it was a really special time. Uh, you know that the ability to uh, to study theology in a context where what I was studying was not just abstract and. Uh, book knowledge, yeah. but it had practical application in, in the, the context of being in the inner city, uh, ministering actively while I was there, 
you know, for those of us that have a bent toward urban ministry, toward uh, university campus ministry, life in the city, uh, you really you really couldn't have asked for better than right. what I had right. uh, access to. So it was, it was fantastic. Yeah. Got to ask you about uh, your time uh, at University of Toronto. Um, was uh, Jordan B. Peterson uh, yeah. active there at that time? Oh yeah, we we yeah. were reading a lot of articles in yeah. those days. Yeah, and and were you around when that whole controversy over? Uh, uh, language erupted. Uh, I was, and uh, yeah, yeah. Talk, talk to us a little bit about your uh, sure. your uh, impressions and thoughts yeah. about Jordan B. Peterson because he's uh, he's certainly become uh, a bit of a national icon. That's right. Yeah, yeah you know, it's it is an interesting uh, conversation in terms of linguistic developments, right? So I know that for many who are purists of the English language, mm-hmm. I'm married to. Uh, an English woman. She yes. studied English literature and language at a university in England. So my wife is is of one of those uh, practice English law. Li- practice law. Yeah, uh, she's working at a at a law firm downtown now. So we're grateful for that. Um, for the English purists, yeah, they would probably take issue with uh, Peterson's approach. Mm-hmm. Uh, sorry, they would they would probably side with Peterson's approach in some to some extent. But uh, I remember reading everything that was developing with Peterson. Something I'm grateful for is that, you know, even before I was studying at the University of Toronto, I was studying at Tyndale Seminary. Mm-hmm. Started there in, in 2008. And I remember during our orientation at Tyndale Seminary, ha- taking these workshops where uh, they they really encouraged us to use gender-inclusive language mm-hmm. and to even uh, read from translations of the Bible that used gender-inclusive pronouns and mm-hmm. language. Mm-hmm. And I'm really grateful for that. Mm-hmm. I know that it's, you know, for many that are English language purists, it's meant an, a linguistic adjustment, if you will. Yeah. Uh, but I'm of the opinion that, and, you know, this is just opinion, so take it for what it's worth, but yeah. we, as Christians, communicating the gospel, a gospel that is accessible, mm-hmm. a gospel that is, is meant to encounter people where they are, uh, at a time in the 21st century, when, you know, the post-cultural war era, uh, we already, I, I feel like we already face enough challenges in communicating the gospel to the culture, mm-hmm. uh, because it is countercultural. Mm-hmm. that if there are ways that we can reduce, without changing our message, without changing right. our theology, if there are ways that we can reduce uh, the cultural obstacles to communicating right. the gospel, right. so for some, maybe that that's, you know, uh, gender exclusivity in our mm-hmm. use of pronouns and language. Mm-hmm. If we can reduce that so as to communicate the gospel, I'm, I'm in favor of that. All things to, that I might reach some. That's right. Yeah. It's, it's interesting, right? So if, if someone's listening to me preach, mm-hmm. and this is someone who's far from Christ, uh, I can say something that is very tangential mm-hmm. to the, the message of my sermon. So maybe, you know, to continue this example, maybe I use a pronoun that is not gender inclusive. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that has nothing to do with my, my sermon, really, but it's something that right. I say. It can become such a distraction to the listener that mm-hmm. they miss entirely what I'm actually saying in my message. So if I can reduce yeah. that, yeah. Uh, that's something I've always tried to do. And I think especially yeah. in our 21st century uh, pluralistic, multicultural, mm-hmm. urban Canadian context mm-hmm. as preachers, mm-hmm. uh, we're not we're not compromising our theology when we do that. We're just making what we say more accessible to the person who's far from Christ. Yeah, yeah. 
Well, I don't know, Aaron. I think uh, King James is the only King James ver- only only true version. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think that that was clearly the the version that Jesus preached. From, yeah, you know, so. Jesus spoke in Elizabethan English. Yes, he did. I and love then, the King James version, for the record. <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah, I, me too. The the prose is beautiful. The yeah. verse is, is beautiful. Yeah, I wouldn't say it's the only translation that we can use. <laughs> no. <laughs> Well, now, speaking of tangents, there we go, eh? Yeah. yeah. Well, that's what our podcasts for. That's right. It's not for tangents. That's right. Um, but, uh, so, talk to me a bit more about, um, you know, your path of studies. Like, what, uh, where, where have you gone to school? Sure. And what have yeah. you studied? And yeah. how far did you go? And Well, I'll try to give you the elevator version. Uh, mm-hmm. I was uh, in, I, my family lived in London, Ontario. Mm-hmm. Went to high school there. Uh, I would say probably in my uh, late teens, as I was finishing up high school, kind of had glimpses of uh, the notion mm-hmm. of going to Bible college, uh, but was uh, strongly encouraged to go to university. Mm-hmm. Uh, wasn't discouraged from going to Bible college, mm-hmm. but you know, there's a great university in London, the University of Western Ontario. Yeah, yeah. Uh, my siblings went there. It was, you know, I was encouraged to go there, so I did. Uh, mm-hmm. Studied uh, BA in history and French mm-hmm. at the University of Western Ontario. Enjoyed it. Uh, I probably wasn't the most diligent student in those days. How old were you? Uh, I started when I was 17. Well, that would explain it. Yeah, yeah. so, you know, my uh, prefrontal cortex hadn't yes. fully developed yet. And yeah. I'll make every excuse I can. Uh, <laughs> the fact is I was a slacker. <laughs> Uh, but no, I enjoyed it. I, I would say I probably enjoyed being in, you know, being in the university community, uh, meeting other students. Yeah. You know, enjoying student life. You were learning. It just wasn't necessarily everything that was in the curriculum. That's right. Yeah, yeah that's it. Um, but uh, became involved in some really dynamic campus ministries, university campus ministries, mm-hmm. uh, and started to develop a, an interest in university ministry, campus ministry. Uh, so became more involved in that, became more involved in my local church, began to discern a call to pastoral ministry, mm-hmm. uh, and then decided to go to seminary. Uh, went to Tyndale Seminary in Toronto. Mm-hmm. I did uh, a joint program there. I did a Master of Divinity in pastoral ministry with a minor in Pentecostal studies. Mm-hmm. Uh, and really grateful for that. Mm-hmm. Uh, Tyndale doesn't pay me to say this, but I would say in terms of uh, getting formation for ministry yeah. and for academics... Uh, it was a it was a very crucial time in my life. Yeah, and it was in those in those courses in Tyndale, mm-hmm. having moved to Toronto, moving from London, Ontario, to Toronto, uh, to the city for the first mm-hmm. time, worshiping at a church in the in the urban context, mm-hmm. taking courses on urban church planting and urban church development. But yeah. I really started to develop a, an interest in urban ministry, uh, and there really was no looking back after that yeah. for me. It was sort of, it, it felt like the culmination of, of my interests and passions and calling, and so I said, this is it. Yeah. Uh, and from there, you know, from uh, studying urban ministry, uh, studying Pentecostal studies, I kind of continued on both of those paths, mm-hmm. uh, and I started a PhD in theology at Wycliffe College at the University of Toronto, mm-hmm. uh, specializing in the history of Christianity Mm-hmm. Uh, in my case, looking specifically at the history of Pentecostalism in Canada, and mm-hmm. then simultaneously 
pastoring in the urban context, like I mentioned, at Stone Church. So working on the orthodoxy while you're doing the orthopraxy. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Any uh, tip of the hat, uh, uh, high fives to any favorite profs at Tyndale? Uh, yeah, I uh, would say Van Johnson mm-hmm. was uh, very influential uh, yeah. studying the Pentecostal studies courses that I took at Tyndale. Yeah. And Ron Kidd, who oh, yeah. was yeah. my professor of church history. Yeah. Uh, those two, uh, independently of one another, planted seeds yeah. of interest in those disciplines. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, by God's grace, had the opportunity to study it at a, at a higher level. Mm-hmm. Um, I also really enjoyed the pastoral courses at Tyndale Seminary, uh, specifically homiletics, mm-hmm. the study of preaching. Mm-hmm. Uh, I had Kevin Livingston as my uh, professor of preaching. Who, he, was, he, was, uh, uh, he was great. So, yeah, there were, you know, terrific faculty there. Fred Penny was oh, yeah. teaching yeah. homiletics while I was there, and so they all... Gave me a, a lot to think about. So if any of these guys are listening, um, there, there's your uh, 10 seconds of fame today. Yeah, that's a, an yeah. acknowledgement and, and a thank you. Much gratitude. <laughs> uh, Rebecca Edestrom, she was uh, my mm-hmm. hermeneutics prof. She was mm-hmm. fantastic. So yeah, great, a great faculty. Yeah. Mm. And then, um, so for now, are your studies complete? Thank the Lord, the PhD formal studies. studies. Yeah. The formal yeah. studies are done. I don't think I'm going to go back for any more degrees. And what was your uh, thesis? I looked at the history of Pentecostalism among indigenous people in Canada. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Uh, let, let's come back to that sure. in a minute. Um, so um, one of the, the, the objectives we have with Sidewalk Skyline podcast is, is to talk to people who uh, have been uh, engaged in some way and in urban ministry, you know, people who are people of the city core, uh, they've they've lived and experienced it and been practitioners in 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 the church or in in some type of Christian work. Um, urban ministry is a very multifaceted field. It's uh, very uh, intriguing to see all the different ways it goes. But twenty uh, first um, century. Um, conventional churches are are facing more challenges when it comes to uh, their integration into city neighborhoods. Uh, you know, Toronto is like uh, the city of a thousand islands, yeah. right? You, every neighborhood uh, that exists uh, very uniquely, and uh, while people travel from one neighborhood to another, there's often a a core pride related to, oh, I'm from, you know, uh, you name, you fill in the blank because mm-hmm. there's there's uh, mm-hmm. there's hundreds of neighborhoods, mm-hmm. right? That's right. And um, but as as we think about the role of the church uh, in the city and and particularly uh, neighborhoods that gentrify. Mm-hmm. So uh, areas that at one time uh, or still may be, uh, you know, pockets of poverty mm-hmm. in the city. Mm-hmm. And then that gentrification mm-hmm. happens where uh, money is poured into the infrastructure and into buildings. Mm-hmm. And, and, and there's, a, there's a, often a displacement of mm-hmm. the poor from a neighborhood uh, just because 
the old places that were affordable are gone, mm. and, and um, you know, high-priced condos mm, might right. be replacing right. them. So talk to me about some of your perspectives, having uh, lived in the city yeah. on, on gentrification, and, and, and how is the church to um, uh, position itself in the city around yeah. those kind of things? Great question, Kevin. And I think if we were to, uh, you know, use a great phrase referring to conventional churches. Uh, so some of the history of that, I guess, is that uh, as North, Amer uh, North American cities grew mm -hmm. back in the, uh, and, and by grew, I mean uh, grew exponentially. Right. In the sort of the second half of the 20th century, the post-war mm -hmm. era. Mm -hmm. Uh, many of our evangelical movements had churches in the city core, mm -hmm. and uh, as uh, families grew, as cities grew, as the price of real estate in cities increased, it wasn't unusual for families to move to the fringes of the cities. Uh, sometimes escaping poverty, right? Sometimes doing that as well, yeah. yeah. Uh, I think you know the the term. It's it's probably not, not the most politically correct, but the term that we hear used in a you know in a, a U.S. context is white flight. Right. So you had you know the sort of a, an evacuation, for want of a better yeah. phrase, uh, moving to the suburbs, and in many cases the churches followed. Mm -hmm. uh, those churches that did not follow, some of those conventional churches that remained in the city core often existed as commuter churches. So geographically and physically, the building mm -hmm. remained in the downtown core, but its congregation, its constituents, commuted in on Sunday. Right. And then through the week, weren't, weren't part of the life of the church locally on mm -hmm. the ground. So, you know, all of these, these are, are real cases, and I don't say any of that to question the sincerity of what these churches were doing and what the individuals were doing and uh, any of those things. But... Uh, and I and I love urban ministry. So mm -hmm. I guess I want to I want to qualify what I'm about to say. Uh, there is you, you use the phrase multifaceted urban ministry, which is which is a great word for it. I love all aspects of urban ministry, and there's there's a need for all aspects of urban ministry. I think, mm -hmm. and you would know this better than me. You know, I'm so grateful you're in this role. But in the conversations that you have with people around our country, mm -hmm. uh, perhaps those that are not in a direct urban context, when we say urban ministry, the sometimes the, the images that come to mind are inner city uh, mission. Right. Which is oh, fantastic. You're, oh, you're downtown, you must be a mission. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Um, which is so good, you know. Yeah. I, love our, I love the work of missions, inner mm -hmm. city work, working with uh, people that are down on their luck and living on the street. Mm -hmm. We always need to do that. Right. We don't need to abandon that. Um, what uh, what we've seen, and you mentioned gentrification. What we've seen in you know now into the third decade of the twenty first century, is that inner cities are increasingly affluent. Mm -hmm. And you know, in in my case too, many of my peers that are in my age bracket will have grown up in the suburbs, maybe even grown up in rural contexts, mm -hmm. and now they're moving downtown. Yeah, kind of the reverse trend of what happened in the and re the real estate prices go higher That's as right. you get closer to the core. That's right. Yeah. And so in some cases, those churches that left in the in the 1970s, if they wanted to go back downtown, they couldn't. They couldn't. There, there's no way. Yeah. Uh, that's what I loved about being at Stone Church was here was a church that, you know, in, in many instances, probably was tempted over the years to have moved to a larger uh, lot, larger piece of land on the, you know, the periphery of the city. Yeah. but knew that God had called the church to be 
salt and light, you know, to be right. a lighthouse in the in the downtown core. So they stayed. Um, my my interest in urban ministry is is not to downplay the significance of any of those things. The you know working among street people, the the street yeah. mission, those are all great things. Um, but we have what we're seeing is this increase, you know, this resurgence of a middle class to upper middle class mm -hmm. uh, young demographic that's in the city. And not only can churches not afford the real estate, even if they could, uh, a lot of the municipalities won't zone areas for construction of places of worship. Yeah, that's true. So, you know, we have we face this really unique challenge where the churches. If we if we want to be the church, we really have to, we have to reform our ecclesiology, mm -hmm. because the way that we understand churches to work won't work in some of those neighborhoods. But right. yet, God calls us to be the church. Right. God sends us. God right. God calls us to abide to mm -hmm. um, to to be among to live. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, we in in our current context at Heartland Church, uh, we have uh, most of our congregation probably works in the city of Toronto. But mm -hmm. they live in Mississauga, so they worship in Mississauga. Uh, but you know, in in, an, in a gentrified context, these aren't people that are commuting uh, no. in and out. They, you know, uh, so our response needs to be: How do we get church to them? How do yeah. we become the church that that goes to them and stays among mm -hmm. them? Yeah. Speaking of real estate prices, I, uh, a couple years ago read a. An article and it was talking about that if you measure from uh, the the city center uh, outward in the GTA to you know the far reaches mm. of um, the the burbs mm. that for every kilometer outward uh, there the real estate value drops mm. uh, by sixteen thousand wow. dollars per kilometer wow. and uh, so that just gives yeah. that quite a perspective That's of right. how, how expensive it yeah. is to, to be in the core, to, to, to choose to live in the core. Um, let's, let's go back to, um, you know, your, your, um, uh, your uh, thesis mm. and, and, and the whole aspect of, um, and actually, I mean, since, since you've uh, done that work, you've kind of become a bit of a go-to guy in PAOC. <laughs> Uh, related to your studies and research into Aboriginal mm -hmm. Pentecostal ministry. Uh, I want to explore some of the realities, some mm -hmm. of the challenges facing mm -hmm. First Nations people. Uh, perhaps some of the ways that the broader spectrum, spectrum of Canadians can mm -hmm. strengthen and support the original peoples. Uh, so before we get mm -hmm. too far into the discussion, Oh, personally speaking, where does your interest in Aboriginal mm. life come from? Mm. Thanks, Kevin. It was it really was a personal journey. Yeah. Uh, when I started the when I started studying the PhD, I hadn't arrived at a, a specific subject that I wanted mm -hmm. to study, and sort of uh, at the advice of my supervisors, took a variety of courses. Uh, and they because I was interested in church history, they said it would be great if you took a, a history course that wasn't specific to you know the history of the church. Or religion, but looked at the history of Canada. You know, just looking right. at a Canadian history course. So, I enrolled in a in a course at the School of Graduate Studies at the University of Toronto, separate mm -hmm. from the Toronto School of Theology. So, no theological or religious component to the study. Um, thinking it was a Canadian history course, mm -hmm. and it, I think it was called um, Canadian Post Colonialism. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, just to plead ignorance a little bit here, it, uh, you know, in the title it said, it talked about colonialism and post-colonialism in Canada mm-hmm. and not being versed in the, you know, the verbiage of indigenous studies or in post-colonial yeah. theory. When it said colonialism and post-colonialism, I thought that meant confederation, pre-confederation and post-confederation oh, yeah. in Canada, <laughs> yeah. just to show how ignorant I was, right? Yeah. Um, so it was, it was this incredible exposure and also happened during a time in my life when, um, you know, I was uh, learning new things in a new area, meeting new people, kind of taken from my, the, the home that I was familiar with and uh, what, what I'd grown accustomed to. And so pride was a little bit more emotionally sensitive to what I was learning. Mm-hmm. Uh, and when I started to, uh, through the study of post-colonialism, look at the history of our country mm-hmm. through the lens of the, the experience of indigenous people, mm-hmm. uh, it, was, it was like uh, running, like just getting hit in the face. Like it yeah. was a, a sort of a, a, this abrupt, rude awakening. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I'm probably not articulating it as well as I can, but growing up in, uh, in London, Ontario, which is... Largely speaking, it's changing now, but, you know, certainly when I was growing up, they're largely a mono-ethnic, monoculture. Yeah, historically uh, a wasp enclave. Exactly. Yeah. Um, being, being brought up in that environment with, you know, with the best of all possible opportunities, the best mm-hmm. family upbringing, you know, mm-hmm. fantastic education, still making so many assumptions about the world that I inhabited and the country that I inhabited, and it was as though... Mm-hmm many of those assumptions for the first time were being confronted mm-hmm. uh, and realizing the implications of uh, a colonial legacy in our country mm-hmm. that uh, not only existed pre and post confederation yeah. uh, but a colonial legacy that persists into the mm-hmm. 21st century uh, and it was just it was eye opening uh, and so I, I would say I have not looked at our country or our world the same way since mm-hmm. studying that course really it was life changing Mm-hmm. Um, and so in, in the time following that, you know, it's interesting how the Lord directs our path. Uh, at that same time, studying the history of Christianity, uh, being confronted with post-colonial legacies and realities. Uh, the uh, Truth and Reconciliation Commission of Canada was, was underway at that time. And so it had become quite prominent in mm-hmm. conversation in academic circles and on our, on our news outlets. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, at the same time, there were developments taking place within the PAOC. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you may remember at the, the 2012 General Conference in Ottawa, mm-hmm. in Ottawa mm-hmm. uh, there was a statement, a joint statement of apology and reconciliation yeah. that was made yeah, from the General a Conference. Powerful forward. moment at conference. It was. Uh, yeah. And I wasn't there, but I was reading about it. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I was reading in, in the testimony and uh, through other denominational channels. And it was almost as though my study became a culmination of all of those. Uh, simultaneous influences yeah. culminating in, in my PhD dissertation um, and, and you know and to the extent of uh, the fact that it was a valuable academic exercise, uh, you know, certainly it was but uh, like I mentioned and you mentioned, we always want to uh, blend orthodoxy and orthopraxy mm-hmm. and so having completed that, that thesis, for me it's, it's more than just an academic exercise it's mm-hmm. how do we take what I've learned from the history of our movement, the history of our country, uh, and uh, help it allow it to make sense on the ground. Right. Uh, so that's something you know I'm, I'm continuing to work through. Um, the 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 day to day of it mm-hmm. is that 
like I mentioned, these these colonial legacies persist, mm-hmm. and so. Well, let's let's talk yeah. about some of the biases and some of the assumptions that Canadians, uh, and when I say Canadians, I don't just mean historically Canadian, even new Canadians. Mm-hmm. I mean, mm-hmm. uh, what are some of the biases and mm-hmm. assumptions that that you see held towards Aboriginal mm-hmm. Canadians? Um, how much commonality mm-hmm. when we talk about First Nations? Mm-hmm. Uh, how how much commonality and how much diversity are there between various popu- populations mm-hmm. and tribes mm-hmm. and and just talk to me a bit about sort of for the um, cultural uh, displacement that goes on. Sure. Yeah. So I should uh, and and happy to uh, discuss that. Just want to preface that by saying that I you know don't presume by any means to speak on behalf of any of the. Uh, indigenous people of this country. Yeah, we're and, in armchairs, so it's easy to evaluate the yeah, comments, right? Yeah, I, I would say that uh, it certainly I've had many valuable conversations, uh, and even in a ministry context, you know, mm-hmm. continue to try to develop and expand those conversations, um, mm-hmm. but wouldn't want to presume to speak on behalf of uh, any of the indigenous members of our movement or right. the indigenous people within our country. Um, but to the extent that we all, like you mentioned, as, as residents of this country, we all have uh, an obligation to address mm-hmm. this colonial legacy. I'm happy to comment there. So yeah. um, one of the things I always try to do, so, you know, and, and for those that are tuning in, uh, we're presently in the municipality of Mississauga, Ontario, mm-hmm. Canada. Mm-hmm. And so one of the things uh, I always try to do when discussing the subject is to acknowledge the land. Mm-hmm. Uh, so should mention that we speak to you all today from the historic and traditional lands of the Algonquin and Iroquoian peoples. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've, for those that have been born in Canada, those that have uh, been versed in sort of that story, or the, the history of the uh, nation state of Canada mm-hmm. and the, the nation building enterprise of Canada, mm-hmm. uh, we've, I think in the last 20 to 30 years, become better aware of its implications for Indigenous people. Um, Mm -hmm. I think, you know, if any of us have been watching the news, we're increasingly aware of the challenges that Mm -hmm. residents of the various Indigenous territories and reserves face Mm -hmm. as it relates to subpar, substandard living conditions, um, as it relates to the health of indigenous communities, mm-hmm. uh, challenges that they face related to uh, substance abuse, uh, rates of suicide. I think mm-hmm. be, if any of us have eyes and ears and pay attention, we'll hear all of those things. Um, what I think our job is, and this has a very urban ministry application, is to recognize that those are not just the domain of the reserves and territories. No. That those challenges, they're not, they're not sociological statistics. Uh, these are the very real experiences of yeah. our fellow countrymen and countrywomen. Yeah. Uh, that these are uh, people that have inherited a system mm-hmm. that they didn't create. Right. Uh, and so for those of us... Kind of reminds me of going to Bible college. <laughs> <laughs> It's a little worse than that, I'm afraid. Yeah, yeah, so. yeah, yeah. far worse. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I jest. Yeah, Surely so I jest. For those that have come to Canada, 
so those of us that, that were born here, I think we're, we've, we've had many conversations about that. Um, many have immigrated to Canada within their own lifetime, uh, and certainly not wanting to downplay the, the challenges that are faced by the first-generation Canadian, because those are legitimate in their own right. Uh, but coming to Canada also means coming to terms with the history of the country that, that one now inhabits. Mm-hmm. And so uh, rather than referring to, you know, a Euro-Canadian individual, uh, if, if, we, if we are not Indigenous, if we mm-hmm. don't have Indigenous nationality or ancestry, we are a settler Canadian. We've settled here. Yeah. And irrespective of whether our ancestors came from Europe or elsewhere, uh, whether yeah. we've come from Europe or elsewhere, we've now inherited this colonial legacy, which means that we now benefit from uh, the land that the former inhabitants of this land were dispossessed of. Now, right. nothing changes that. Right. So I want to be careful, and, and this, is, uh, this is not a case of, let's say, white guilt. This is you know, genuinely wanting to come to terms with where we are. Nothing changes what's happened. Yeah, there's a very ugly history in Canada mm-hmm. of the treatment of First Nations exactly. people. Yeah, we can't ignore that. We can't change it, but yeah. uh, you know, I think of the passage in Second Corinthians, I believe it's chapter five, which talks about a ministry of reconciliation. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and I take those words to heart, uh, where it, it speaks of forgiveness, where it mm-hmm. speaks of being Christ's representatives. Uh, I think that being representatives of Christ. Mm-hmm being participants in the ministry of reconciliation uh, means dialogue, but it also means apology and forgiveness. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And uh, for many, we might feel, well, how can I apologize for something that I didn't do? Mm. Uh, But we've inherited the the byproduct or the system of our ancestors. Uh, Christ calls us to, to forgive one another. Right. Forgiveness begins with an apology, and it continues with a dialogue. And so mm-hmm. it's that dialogue of reconciliation that uh, that I'd love to work toward. For sure. Um, you know, uh, I think it, it's important for people to realize, too, that uh, First Nations uh, populations have large clusters in our urban centers. Um, you know, in the GTA, for example, what kind of numbers are there yeah it's you know exactly so the uh, the conversation about reconciliation between settler canadians and indigenous canadians Mm -hmm. indigenous uh, inhabitants of canada it has application in our urban context Mm -hmm. Uh, i was speaking with a friend of mine levi samson beardy yeah and uh, he levi yeah great great guy yeah um, originally from Bearskin Lake mm-hmm. in northwestern Ontario, but he's now co-pastoring Aboriginal Believers Church downtown Toronto, mm-hmm. which is uh, roughly around Bloor and Spadina. Mm-hmm. And in one of our conversations, he told me that there are 70,000 Indigenous residents of Toronto, mm-hmm. uh, and those, those are the residents that would appear on statistic data. And so his estimate is that there's even a higher number of Indigenous residents of Toronto. They just didn't registered. It's not recorded. Or yeah. Recorded. yeah. Uh, so he used, you know, he jokingly said that he pastors on the largest reserve in the country yeah. in terms of its population, right? Yeah. Um, so this is, you know, these, the, the, the issues that we might generalize or stereotype or associate with being 
the, the domain of the reserve of the indigenous mm-hmm. territory. Uh, these are challenges that are, that are encountered by our cohabitants, those that live in the same city that we do. Right. Uh, so, you know, we need to take them that much more seriously. Yeah. I think in ministry as yeah. pastors. Right. We need to view all people as our neighbor. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and, and even as pastors to go the extra mile, uh, mm-hmm. having those conversations with our congregants who might not yet be there. Mm-hmm. You know, who might be where I was before I mm-hmm. took that course in post-colonialism. Yeah. Uh, and it's not about, you know, shattering anybody's, uh, you know, uh, con- concept of our country. Yeah. I'm grateful for our country. Yeah. I think we live in a, in a wonderful country. I love our country. Mm-hmm. Uh, but coming to terms with, the, with its flaws mm-hmm. and, and partnering together and trying to improve um, not just our country, but also our churches and our movement. Yeah. Yeah, I think there, you know, to some degree, you could compare um, Canada's relationship to Aboriginal peoples. Uh, maybe a, would it be fair to say that we've had in a, a Canadian apartheid? Mm. I think so. I think I think that's actually a very helpful way of looking at it, in mm. the sense that it's it's easy for us in Canada sometimes to throw stones at other countries yeah uh, in terms of their because we're so polite that's right yeah, yeah it, it, exactly <laughs> and we think very highly of ourselves yes um, but that does help right that that helps frame exactly you know, not exactly but it helps frame what we're talking about mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, in in the you know in the conversation of social injustices mm-hmm. it's not that different right from say South African apartheid right. in in your uh, thinking too you know, I think you know sometimes when we have make blanket categorizations of any people group mm-hmm. um, it's easy to miss out on the uh, inherent diversity mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. Uh, uh, and 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 the, the range mm-hmm. within a, a people group mm-hmm. so when we talk about first nations mm-hmm. uh, we're talking about uh, multiple nations mm-hmm. within That's exactly Canada. right, and yeah. um, and they they don't all have have the same guidebook. That's right. They're they're uh, people unto themselves yeah. with different practices, yeah. different languages, yeah. in different history. That's right. Yeah, yeah. I mean, a helpful way to look at it is it's it's not an exact comparison, but you know maybe a helpful parallel is that the historic and, and even present-day uh, indigenous nations, nationalities uh, within North America are as diverse in their culture and language mm-hmm. as are the, the peoples of Europe. I mean, you mm-hmm. think about how many different nationalities and oh, languages yeah. there are in Europe. And so, yeah. um, it's, you know, we wouldn't, we wouldn't necessarily put someone from England and someone from Lithuania in the same bracket in terms of their... Their culture and language. We would say, and oh, they're, they're so different. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So, and, and you would see a similar spectrum of difference in terms of the culture and language and history mm-hmm. of the indigenous nations yeah. uh, within North America. Yeah. So, yeah, you, you raise a great point, Kevin, because even as we minister, we often will make assumptions and, and we, right. we love to generalize and categorize and we love to do that with people. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, you know, as it relates to our communication of the gospel, there's a, there's a cultural nuance between one nation and another that we can't be insensitive of, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
and and it uh, it doesn't mean anything until it gets personal, right? That's right. And until the person that I am caring for and loving as my neighbor um, is my my brother, my sister, my That's friend. Right. You know, then then all of those other things that have been defining and shaping how I thought about them. That's right. That that has to dismantle. Yeah. Yeah. Um, how many uh, Christian churches and denominations uh, do you think have uh, taken seriously the whole truth and reconciliation efforts? Uh, I mean, that might be a very broad question, but uh, I mean, so it was in, in this process of truth and reconciliation, mm. which uh, actually kind of flows out of South Africa and the mm. apartheid, yeah. right? Yeah. You know, um, in these efforts at truth and reconciliation, uh, once the apologies are given, mm. once measures of restitution are made, how do we continue mm. to remove offense mm. for past injustice? Mm -hmm. uh, is this a story that ever dies? Mm -hmm. Will there ever be a new story in Canada mm -hmm. that talks about healing and Restoration is mm. the primary narrative, mm -hmm. rather than uh, the the injury mm. and and the uh, you know the the grave sin mm -hmm. that was committed. Yeah, great question, Kevin. Uh, the the Truth and Reconciliation Commission's final report, I believe, was released in 2015. The commission itself had came about a few years before that, and they were. Uh, actually pretty quick in producing their final report. All of the materials of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission are uh, accessible online mm -hmm. and you can download the final report. Um, in terms of its, you know, you asked the question how many churches responded, in terms of uh, its reach, it was actually quite comprehensive mm -hmm. and uh, there, you know, even beyond the published volumes of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, mm -hmm. uh, there have been subsequent conversations uh, for instance, our own movement, the Pentecostal Assemblies of Canada, uh, together with the Evangelical Fellowship of Canada, we've continued an on, you know, ongoing statements that have come out of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. One of the positive outcomes of that is, as I've, you know, as I've studied the history of Christianity among Indigenous people in Canada, one, and we, we don't have time to go into it today, but one of the, the gravest crimes committed was, of course, the residential schooling legacy yeah. Yeah. Uh, and just you know for those those listeners that might not be familiar with it that was uh, a period of uh, over a century where uh, the the country the government of Canada uh, commissioned the churches to give education Western education to indigenous youths um, and the church did so by in many cases removing these youths from their homes, uh, yeah. from their communities, and uh, the the system was uh, filled with abuse and uh, cultural eradication. Yeah. So something that we've come to view right rightly as having been a very very negative blight, very negative aspect of the history of Christianity in Canada. So I don't have time to go into all of that, but just yeah. broadly speaking, it was uh, the Anglican. Catholic, United, and Presbyterian churches, mm -hmm. predominantly Catholic and Anglican, and to you know a lesser extent the United and Presbyterian churches, who were involved in residential schooling. Mm -hmm. uh, there was probably a time in our 
uh, movement's history, the Pentecostal Assemblies of Canada, as the negative implications of the residential schooling legacy were coming to the attention of the public, it, it was a, a popular trend for, and, and not in any kind of official capacity, but maybe in a more anecdotal capacity, for individuals to think, well, those weren't Pentecostal churches that were doing that. Yeah, yeah, let's d dismiss ourselves right. because, uh, well, yeah, I, I hear what you're saying. So one of the, I think, positive outcomes of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, as well as the, the PAOC's joint apology, joint mm -hmm. statement of apology and reconciliation at the 2012 General Conference, was uh, dismissing that claim. Kind right. of, you know, putting to death that claim of uh, not of non-responsibility, yeah. and and actually saying, although it was not our church that did that, that that there there still is a responsibility. That I mean, we didn't. I, I don't think we anybody raised a voice to the injustice. That's right from our circles. Yeah. you know. Or so there was an yeah. ignorance. Uh, yeah. There was there was a responsibility to have said or done something at the time, yeah. and so. Uh, to answer your question, one of the positive outcomes of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission and the apology was was actually coming to to terms with that, coming to yeah. grips with that. Yeah. Uh, I'm you know, I'm 33 years old. I've I've been studying this history for the past few years. So uh, there's but there's a long background to this, and mm -hmm. and there were previous apologies from both churches and governments going back into you know the, the early 1980s. Yeah. So I I say that to say that there may be some that having lived through those earlier apologies might view the more recent wave of apologies as being no different in their potential mm -hmm. as were those earlier apologies and and I think if someone feels that way it could be understandably so mm -hmm. maybe it's because I'm new to this but I'm quite optimistic so to you know to answer your question about what are you know what are the the further reaching implications of this and where does this go uh, I'm I'm hopeful and I'm I'm optimistic and I I believe in the uh, potential for a, a fuller reconciliation. Yeah. And it's not because of the way an apology was was done. I think it it's more of a coming to terms with we all have a part in this. Right. Um, and right. you know I know I mentioned it, but just coming back to that Second Corinthians uh, passage, Second Corinthians chapter five, eleven to twenty one talking about a ministry of reconciliation. Mm. Uh, I, I really believe that the Holy Spirit will, uh, if, if we are open to it, if we're humble, mm -hmm. uh, if, if we're prayerful, if, mm -hmm. if we're intentional in our actions, uh, will guide us in this. Mm -hmm. And I, I'm optimistic because, st uh, in terms of demographics, for the first time, uh, in in centuries, maybe for the first time since European arrival, over the last 10, 15 to 20 years, for the first time, the indigenous population of Canada has shown a significant uh, gr uh, percentage of growth. Mm. And I say that population growth. Population growth. Mm -hmm. So uh, this this is this is a wonderful thing. Yeah. Uh, because all of the injustices that were committed, not dismissing them. Uh, you know, all of the introduction of harmful pathogens, the wars, mm -hmm. certainly in the U.S. and mm -hmm. in uh, Central and South America, everything that they did to threaten to eradicate a population, mm -hmm. by God's grace, that population is now in resurgence. Yeah. 
uh, that again, that's not to dismiss everything that's happened and the seriousness of what's happened, but I really view this as being a uh, their day is not done. Their day is not done, and their day and, is being renewed. And for yeah. those of us, for those of us settler Canadians mm-hmm. that that are humble enough and willing enough to be a part of it, I really believe that this is God giving us another chance mm-hmm. to see a reconciliation. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it, it'll have to come at a cost. Yeah. It'll mean that the way that settler Canadians have lived will have to change. It will mean that the way that we, uh, the way that we speak, the way that we look at our country, the way that we interact with uh, those in our country, it, it will all have to change, and we have to be open to that. Mm. Um, let's talk a little bit about um, uh, Pentecostal Christians in First Nations. Uh, there's, uh, you know, there are, there's a spectrum of uh, Christian approaches to Aboriginal culture. On one hand, you have First Nations people that believe that Christ is against traditional culture because they would view native spiritual practices or cultural practices to be antithetical to the Christian message. Um, they would view things like maybe the drum circle, uh, smudging, sweat lodges, uh, other practices as false religion that can keep people in bondage to demonic influence or at least as old and superstitious ways that Christians find freedom from. Um, and uh, that might be kind of like Richard Niebuhr's description mm. of Christ against culture. Yeah. Yeah. You know, that to follow Jesus is to be opposed to yeah. the culture from which you originate. Yeah. Um, there's other Christians and other First Nation Christians that would hold to more of the Christ of culture view um, that uh, we see uh, Christ by looking at the culture. And, and you know discerning and looking for how is Christ revealed through the uniqueness of a culture or um, the Christ transforming culture view you know mm-hmm. Richard Niebuhr had I think five different mm-hmm. views of culture but um, but within the Abor- Aboriginal community there's really theology wars over mm-hmm. these kind of things mm-hmm. uh, you know the, the people that hold some very sharp views um, in contradiction to uh, to others, mm. and, and I suppose that that's not just an Aboriginal thing. That's a theology mm. thing. That's a human thing. Yeah, that's right. Um, so, what what have you uh, any reflections on that whole uh, place of culture uh, for the Christian mm. from First Nations? Yes. Yeah. And, and that's another great question, Kevin. So uh, I should say again, very happy to comment on this. But I know you, you're not the uh, spokesperson. That's right. right. So yeah, I wouldn't want to presume no, to speak on behalf opinion. of uh, Tom, uh, of any uh, yeah any any representatives of Indigenous Pentecostal ministry. Uh, there is yeah, there is a a real. I mean, probably the best word is controversy. Mm-hmm. Over the place of indigenous culture within Christianity, mm-hmm. um, and not not just in Canada but globally. Right? That's right. That's yeah. right. Yeah. So the, it has implications uh, for the indigenous peoples of the world. 
uh, I think that you know I look at it from the perspective of uh, both a pastor mm-hmm. uh, an evangelist if you will mm-hmm. someone that is genuinely interest, interested in the the spread of the gospel message mm-hmm. uh, I also try to look at it through somewhat of a, you know a sociological lens mm-hmm. and, and in that sense probably try to remain a little bit more arm's length mm-hmm. uh, and so I can observe and report but really it's not my place to, to say what should be done no um, but I do believe that in order for the gospel to really flourish within a society, uh, that the, the culture of that society needs to be able to uh, translate, to receive the gospel and translate it to their own societal context. Mm-hmm. That's not a, I, I haven't invented that concept, and that's not a concept that's new or unique to, uh, you know, indigenous Pentecostalism. I mean, if we look at the history of Christianity from its, uh, from its beginnings, mm-hmm. uh, the beginnings of the church, we'll say, in Jerusalem, to you know, its, its dissemination throughout the Asian continent and certainly westward into the European continent uh, in those, you know, those first millennia, the, the gospel always underwent a process of translation, not just mm-hmm. of, of language, but of culture. Yeah, it couldn't get to the Gentiles without there being a adaptation. That's right. Yeah. Uh, so, in terms of the the language that's used to express it, the cultural language that's used to express it, that's changed. the The message, the theology of it, doesn't change. Right. Mm-hmm. The core of the gospel does not change. So, uh, I think in terms of a culture owning the gospel, mm-hmm. to the extent that 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 gospel message is not contaminated or diluted, mm-hmm. I think it is beneficial for cultural expressions to be integrated into mm-hmm. the dissemination of the gospel because that's how the individual receives it, hears it, and takes ownership of it. Yeah. Uh, you know, and, and in this case, comparisons often will be made to the way that in Europe there were elements of paganism that mm-hmm. were adapted to Christian practice. I mean, yeah. uh, events as central in the Christian calendar, of course, as Christmas and Easter. The, mm-hmm. Those calendar dates are based upon the dates that pagan festivals took place yeah. in. Yeah. Uh, so I think that, there, you know, for the external critic... So from the Christian perspective of, you know, uh, taking on the pagan holiday mm-hmm. or the pagan culture, the intention was not that, oh, we better just go along with the world around us, but was to say, no, there's something, there's a redemptive That's right. opportunity. That's right. Yeah. Uh, it's, you know, the, the missiological term for what we're describing is contextualization. Yeah. It's uh, creating context mm-hmm. uh, or uh, allowing the gospel to be expressed in a language that is contextual, mm-hmm. without again without contaminating it, without diluting it. That's a, mm-hmm. if it if that if that gospel message becomes contaminated or diluted, that's something separate called syncretism. Right. And so you know it's an oversimplification, but I think broadly speaking today, uh, missiologists, pastors, missionaries alike, they would say contextualiz- contextualization. Yes. Syncretism, no. Right. But it's it's walking the fine line between those two, uh, where 
you know, the, that principle is most challenged. Yeah. So, yeah. specifically applied to the context of Indigenous Pentecostalism, um, again, just speaking as an observer, it, th there is a, a spectrum of positions on this, mm -hmm. uh, and I think that's okay. Mm -hmm. I think that it's, uh, it's something that, I, again, I, I can't comment on, I don't pretend or seek to influence it, but I think it's a dialogue that needs to be had. Mm -hmm. uh, probably one that needs to be had internally uh, and if if there is no at, at the end of those conversations if uh, indigenous Pentecostals arrive at, at different conclusions for the appropriateness of contextualization I think that's okay too mm -hmm. great example that I've heard used and I can't take credit for this this is something that uh, came up in my conversations with Graham Gibson mm -hmm. was you know in the same way that we use the the example of the diversity of indigenous nations across the country of Canada. Mm -hmm. uh, likewise, within those respective nations, this is a generalization, but within those respective nations, there are varying degrees of acceptance and practice of, of contextualization. Right. Uh, so to use the example of, you know, West Coast British Columbia, West Coast Canada, British Columbia, uh, contextualization in many cases is taken for granted. Mm -hmm. It's, you know, the, the integration of uh, indigenous cultural observances, you know, the mm -hmm. examples of regalia, music and dance, oral liturgy, narrative theology, dreams and visions, the integration of those expressions traditionally associated with indigenous cultural observances yeah. uh, into Pentecostal worship, that's sort of taken for granted. But if you move across the country, uh, into you know regions inhabited by uh, by those of Cree nationality into Ontario. Uh, I'm you know I'm I'm sweeping with uh, with broad strokes here, but um, more so into uh, Oja Cree uh, territory, perhaps Ojibwe territory mm -hmm. uh, in northern Ontario. There's a stronger reservation. Uh, there's a there's a hesitation mm -hmm. to practice contextualization. There's there's mm -hmm. less of a, a desire to integrate indigenous cultural practices into Christian worship and maybe even a position that's taken against culture. Um, a great... I wonder if uh, in our history if, if we created that tension. Quite possibly. Yeah, yeah I, I think that, you know, certainly in our... I mean, if we're to, if we're to talk about the history of Pentecostal mission, uh, there, there was a period, probably you know a lengthy one, when uh, Euro-Canadian Pentecostal missionaries took a position that was against Indigenous culture. Mm -hmm. Again, that's a generalization. Yeah, they they didn't universally do that. Uh, in it was you know something that actually came to the fore in the late 1990s and early 2000s. Mm -hmm. uh, the National Native Leadership. Council of the Pentecostal Assemblies of Canada in 1998, they met to discuss this, and it was in 2000 uh, that at that time, James Kalapa, he was the director of uh, uh, of the National Native Leadership Council and then mm -hmm. uh, Aboriginal Ministries at a national level, they issued something called the Revised Statement of Affirmations, mm -hmm. and, and that actually proposed guidelines to talk about the very careful integration uh, and discernment of indigenous spiritual and cultural practices that were now deemed permissible mm -hmm. in Pentecostal worship, and you can you know you can have a look at that statement of affirmations. But those guidelines were all drawn from Scripture, and so they kind of provided a rubric mm -hmm. for the interpretation of 
uh, both scripture and those indigenous yeah, cultural maybe, observances. Yeah, maybe I can get you to send me some links sure. that we can add to we the show to notes so uh, listeners uh, that want to dig deeper can, uh, yeah. can follow the trail. I'd be happy to. Another yeah. a great resource is a book by Cheryl Bear Barnetson called mm-hmm. Introduction to First Nations Ministry, mm-hmm. uh, where she talks about those processes as well. So for those okay. that are interested in further reading, that's a good resource too. Uh, if people want to get a hold of you, Aaron, uh, what's the best way to track you down? You can email me, uh, Aaron at a churchconnected.ca. Uh, follow A A R O N. That's right, A A R O N at, at a church connected. A church connected. A church A C H U R C H connected. Dot C A. Uh, follow me on social media. A A M Ross. A A M Ross. Yeah. Aaron Mix Ross. That's right. Yeah. Aaron, it's uh, been just uh, really great sitting and uh, catching up, but also just uh, hearing um, some of the the insights and some of the the you know s- strategic thought you've been engaged in uh, along these lines. And uh, uh, so, thanks so much for your time thanks, today, and uh, uh, God's uh, blessings on you and your wife and, you. and your ministry. Thank you. Um, just uh, in way of closing, uh, would you maybe just say, uh, uh, "Let's." Uh, I'd like you to lead us in a prayer Be happy for to. Uh, uh, for First Nations. Be happy to. Thank yeah. you, Kevin. Thank you for the opportunity to uh, be on your podcast. You're welcome. God, you've called us to a ministry of reconciliation, Lord. As uh, those words were recorded millennia ago, uh, they were as true then as they are now. Lord, we ask that your Holy Spirit would guide us. Lord, we pray that you would give us humility. Lord, give us the willingness to have conversations. Lord, to uh, for, for those of us that are settler Canadians, uh, Lord, to have the humility, the willingness to, to seek forgiveness, God. Uh, Lord, to even if it's something that we don't feel that we ourselves committed, something that our ancestors or our forebears did, Lord, to seek reconciliation, God, to... Uh, be made at one with our brothers and sisters. Lord, we ask that your Holy Spirit would guide us, guide our movement, guide our country. Uh, Lord, may we draw closer to the design that you have for your kingdom people. We thank you for this work, Lord, of Mission Canada and of Urban Mission. Uh, Lord, we ask that you bless Kevin, bless the work that he does, bless the work of this ministry. Lord, we pray that your Holy Spirit would encounter our cities. Lord, that uh, the, the centers of Canadian cities, the Canadian cities would be uh, hubs and centers uh, where Christianity, the gospel message would thrive. Yes. Lord, where you would encounter the, the people of this country, Lord, where yes. they would be transformed. Uh, Lord, where your kingdom would be advanced. We pray that you'd guide us in this, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. And Thanks, on God. that note, I will also say amen. Awesome. Bless you. That was Aaron Mixross. I work as part of Mission Canada's Urban Guiding Group. As we have met and discussed Canadian examples of faith at work in our cities, we came up with an acronym to categorize our findings. That is the word QUEST. The letter Q standing for Qualitative Neighboring, U, Urban Church, E, Energizers, S, street work engagement, and T, transformers. 
each of those categories have something uh, to say to us about the values and the practices of Canada's urban Christians. Over the next several episodes, we're going to have quest conversations with people that exemplify the values and the practices of each of the quest categories. In the introduction to this episode, I made a remark about uh, having long pondered what it means to love my Canadian neighbors. Well, the next two episodes are a conversation with the letter Q. Qualitative neighboring is the practice of living intentionally in a specific neighborhood to model the principles of Jesus with the people living nearby. That's what I've endeavoring to, to be doing here in Windsor these last 27 years. Uh, you're gonna meet some great guests on the next two episodes. Uh, Karen Reed lives at Parker House in East Vancouver. Bob Cameron is the visionary behind the Downtown Windsor Community Collaborative. And Paula Castrucci spent some time in Toronto with the Move In organization. We're taking a deep dive into the question, what does it mean to literally love my neighbors? Well, come back, and if you haven't already subscribed, uh, subscribe to this podcast. It's available on all podcast platforms, and any of the video uh, versions of the podcast we also put on YouTube. So check us out, and until the next time that I see you, I'm Kevin Rogers, host of Sidewalk Skyline Podcast. Keep one ear to the sky and one ear to the ground of the city that you're living in.